And Father, we, we come humbled before you because your word is nothing to trifle with. And so we know it's an awesome thing to open up your word and to seek to understand it and to seek to apply it. And we would ask for your, your help that we would not make mistakes, that we would not get off track. We pray, Father, that your word would have its intended work in our hearts, that, Lord, you would do a work in our congregation, that you would sanctify us and protect us and purify us. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Our God is a God of truth. In Psalm 31.5, the Bible calls him the God of truth. Jesus said that God's word is truth in John 17. In addition to that, Jesus said about himself, I am the truth in John 14.6. We also read in scripture that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So Father, Son, and Spirit are all concerned with truth. In contrast to that, the Bible says that Satan is a liar and that he is a deceiver and that he's the father of lies and that he's doing his dead level best to influence his servants to inject false teaching into the church in order to destroy whatever he can within the church of Jesus Christ. This was a problem that was going on in the church that was at Ephesus. We know that because if we just simply read through First uh, Timothy, you'll read reference after reference to false teaching that had come in. And I want to direct your thoughts and your attention to some of those passages as we get started. Before we read in First Timothy, I want to remind you of something that the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20 when he gathered the Ephesian elders together. And in verse 29 he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Now he is speaking to the Ephesian elders. And he says, after I'm gone, men are going to arise from among you. They're going to speak perverse things and they're going to draw away the disciples after them. He's speaking to the elders. So he, he's talking about elders arising, speaking perverse things and drawing away disciples. And then when we get to the book of 1 Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 3, this is what he says. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Now, that's a lot there, but just notice some of these phrases. Strange doctrines, myths, endless genealogies, fruitless discussions. Then, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone away astray from the faith. So here, in addition to what we've already read, we read about worldly and empty chatter and opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. 
By the time we get to the book of 2 Timothy, which happened two to five years after the first book was written, nothing's really changed. Paul told Timothy to go to the church in Ephesus to straighten things out, to, to silence these false teachers, but evidently he hadn't been able to do it. This was a tough assignment for this young man who was naturally timid and would shrink from such kinds of things. But we were surmising that when Anesiphorus came to Rome and eagerly searched for Paul and refreshed him, that he told Paul that there's still these genealogy discussions and these fruitless controversies and these myths that are being propagated. And so that prompts Paul now to write again to Timothy to say, this is what you need to do to straighten this out because this is going to have a poisoning effect upon the church unless you get it resolved. So that's really what we're talking about when we come to 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 19. In fact, it's the beginning of a new section. He's going to be talking about false teaching from 2 Timothy 2, 14 to chapter 3, verse 9. It's a whole big, long section in this book. And what we want to do this morning is look at three aspects of false teaching. The characteristics of false teaching, the consequences of false teaching, and the cure for false teaching. Okay, so let's take a look first of all at the characteristics. What does it look like? What's it characterized by? And the very first thing we see in the text is that it's characterized by wrangling about words. He says in verse 14, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. Now that word wrangle, interesting word. I looked it up this week because I wasn't exactly sure what it means to wrangle. To wrangle is an, an angry, noisy dispute. It means to quarrel or to bicker. It means to fight with words. In fact, the literal Greek here is Word battles. Paul's identifying word battles that were going on amongst the church members there in Ephesus. And he's saying, don't do it. Don't wrangle. Don't bicker. Don't fight and dispute about mere words. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 4 and 6, he talks about myths, endless genealogies, fruitless discussions. In 1 Timothy 6, 4, and 5, he talks about controversial questions, disputes about words. And in 2 Timothy 2, 23, he talks about foolish and ignorant speculations. So do you kind of get a, a feeling for what he's, he's talking about? This isn't... Th these aren't closed-handed positions that we must all be in agreement about. These are secondary... Um, Secondary issues that aren't that important, but people were spending all of their time fighting and arguing and bickering over them. And it had to do with myths, fruitless discussions, genealogies, you know, things that don't matter, but yet the church was getting embroiled in these, these bitter disputes about these kinds of things. So the first thing we notice about false teaching is that it's characterized by wrangling, disputing, fighting, and bickering. Secondly, it's characterized by being useless. Because he does tell us in verse 14 that this wrangling about words is useless. So something that's useless is something that doesn't profit anybody, right? Now in contrast to this, he's going to tell us in this same book, in chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and is what? Profitable. The word of God is profitable. Wrangling about words is unprofitable. It's useless. 
No one's built up in the faith. No one is growing closer to Christ. No one's being instructed in good, solid, healthy doctrine. It's just bickering and fighting. It's useless. And then the third thing we see about false teaching is that it's characterized by an inaccurate handling of the Word of God. And we know that from verse 15. He said, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. Handling accurately the word of truth. You see, there are two kinds of workmen. There are good workmen and there are bad workmen. A good workman doesn't need to be ashamed when he's presented before God because he has spent his life handling God's word accurately and faithfully. But a bad workman does need to be ashamed because when he's presented before God, it will be found out that he has handled the word of God inaccurately and unfaithfully. And so, false teaching is spread by those that don't handle God's word accurately. In fact, in verse 18, he talks about those who have gone astray from the faith. Men who have gone astray from the truth saying that the resurrection has already taken place and thus they upset the faith of some. So to be someone who handles God's word inaccurately it means that you're straying. You're getting off the path. You're, you're straying from the truth. Straying away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We need to be concerned about accurate handling of God's word. In 2 Corinthians 2.17 Paul says, We're not like many, peddling the word of God but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. He said we're not peddling the word of God. We're not like a peddler on the street who's selling those, um, those corn things that Fernando tells me about. You know, The little guy with a little push, push truck. Peddling something and selling something down the street. Or 2 Corinthians 4.2. He says, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We're not adulterating it. Now, what do you, what do you think it means to adulterate something? What was that? Okay, to pervert it? Yeah. Any other synonyms that come to mind? To believe that it is something else other than what it is? Okay, so a little bit different than that. Okay, to change it, to, to let mixture come in, some mixture of error seep in, you're adulterating it. Okay. okay, yeah, to make it unfaithful. So he's telling us here, false teaching, mark it down, is characterized by someone who doesn't handle God's word accurately. And folks, we need to be on our guard because we, we hear preachers all the time, don't we? At least I do. I'm constantly listening to sermons. <laughs> We just need to have our guard up. We, we need to have our Bible filter on our brain so that when we're listening to someone, we're filtering what they say through the Scripture. Are they handling God's Word accurately or inaccurately? And then it's also characterized by worldly and empty chatter. Notice that. Verse 16, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Now, what does he mean by worldly chatter? Worldly. Well, that word means profane or unhallowed. It's the word for something that's trodden down. In other words, it's common. 
It doesn't mean it's necessarily sinful, but it's common. It's, um, it's not set apart as holy. And so he's saying that have nothing to do with this worldly chatter. The opposite of holy or sacred. People babbling on about common things. And so this would be the person who, who loves to preach about things that are common or worldly rather than about things that are sacred or eternal. And folks, here in the United States, we have all kinds of people. This seems to be where we go as a nation when it comes to preachers. <laughs> people that love to talk about how you can use the Bible to get worldly gain from it. You know, self-help. Or you can just have your best life right now if you'll follow these three easy steps. Or you can have health and wealth if you do this or if you do that. They're, they're concentrating not on the eternal and the sacred, but on the worldly or the common. And people are chattering about that. Peddling the Word of God. Trying to get something now in a worldly sense by using the Bible. And really, the issue for us is not, can I get something for myself by using the Bible? That's the completely wrong approach. But can I approach this book as a holy book given by God and find out how can I please God by what's written in this book? How can I give God glory and honor? How can I show my love to Him from things that He's revealed about Himself in this book? So there we have the characteristics of false teaching. That's what it looks like. It looks like wrangling, uselessness, inaccurate handling, and worldly, and I forgot this one, didn't I? Empty chatter. What's empty chatter? Well, something that's empty has no spiritual substance to it. It's vain. It doesn't profit. In fact, it's a waste of time. And when people preach on and on about using the Bible to get this or get that, to me, that's just useless. Because it's not setting our hearts and minds on what is really important. Okay, let's look at number two. What are the consequences of false teaching? What does it lead to? Well, let's look at what Paul says. Verse 14. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless, and here it comes, and leads to the ruin of the hearers. The ruin. Now, this isn't some light little word. When we talk about ruin, we're talking about destruction. We're talking about heaven and hell hanging in the balance between whether someone is faithful to God's word and whether he is unfaithful to it. Whether he handles it accurately or inaccurately. If you handle it inaccurately and are unfaithful, it can lead to the ruin of the people that are listening to you. Wow, what a solemn thing to consider. And no wonder he says in James chapter 3, let not many among you be teachers, my brethren, knowing that you are going to undergo a stricter judgment because if what you say can lead to someone's ruin, it's, that, it's a heavy, heavy responsibility. So we have to take this seriously. According to Paul, it can lead to ruin. In fact, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 19, he says, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered, What? shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these, and he names names here, are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus and Alexander suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith because they went astray from the truth. 
Somebody was handling God's word inaccurately and somebody was believing that inaccurate teaching and it led them off course and made shipwreck of their faith. In fact, the word here for ruin is a really interesting word. It's catastrophe. Is there any English word that sounds like that? Catastrophe or catastrophic. He's saying that this can have a catastrophic effect on the people that hear that false teaching, that wrangling about words, that bickering over inconsequential things. In fact, in verse 18, he also says, These men have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Now, when I think of the word upset, I think of, oh, well, someone's being disturbed. Like, did I upset you? Did I disturb you? That's not what this word means. This is the word for taking a boat and capsizing it and overturning it so that everyone in the boat is in the water now struggling to survive in danger of drowning. This is talking about eternal ruin. The possibility that people can be lost because they're listening and heeding a false message. So here we have one of the consequences. Ruin. Eternal ruin. Second one is shame. And we saw that in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. So a good workman doesn't need to be ashamed, but a bad workman on judgment day will stand before God and he will receive shame. He will be ashamed of what he's done when his works and his teaching are tested by God. You remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where it talks about those people who are building on Paul's and Apollos' foundation? And says there that God is going to test every man's work to see what kind of work it was. Is it gold, silver, or precious stones, or is it wood, hay, or stubble that are going to burn up? If you're a teacher, your words will be tested by God. Again, it makes me wonder, what am I doing standing up here trying to teach anybody? Lord, help me. Help me to get it right, and if I'm wrong, help them to know it's wrong. <laughs> because this is a solemn thing. It's kind of like if you hire a contractor to come out and, and do some work on your house. And unbeknownst to you, they're using cheap, substandard materials, and they're cutting corners to get the job done faster, and they're charging a premium price. Now, what would you think about a contractor like that? The guy ought to be ashamed of himself, right? Well, if we have done that, if we've been shoddy workmen, we're going to be ashamed of ourselves, Eternal shame. We'll stand before Christ and, and receive shame rather than a well done from His hand. Another consequence of false teaching we find is ungodliness. Verse 16. Avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness. So here we have that the way of life, the way we live, is actually molded and shaped by the things that we teach and the things that we believe. And all through these pastoral epistles, Paul talks about sound doctrine, sound teaching. The word sound means healthy. Teaching that will promote spiritual health. There is a kind of teaching that will promote spiritual disease, and there is a kind of teaching that will promote spiritual health. And the kind of teaching that was going on in Ephesus was leading to ungodliness, Spiritual disease within the body of Christ. We need to be really careful. Bad doctrine leads to bad living. 
Sometimes you'll hear people say, we want life, not doctrine. You know, I grew up in certain circles where that was kind of, that's what people talked like. I don't, I'm not interested in theology. I'm not interested in doctrine. I want life, man. Give me life. But you know what? You can't have life without good doctrine. Good doctrine leads to life and leads to health. Good, solid theology is something that every child of God should be pursuing. Theology means the study of God, the knowledge of God. Don't you want to know God? (laughs) If you're a Christian, you want to know God. He's the one that saved you. Of course you want to know God. So we need to be students of God. We need to understand theology and good, healthy, sound doctrine. Because if we don't, it will lead us in the path of ungodliness. And none of us wants to go there. We want to live godly, holy lives that will please our Master. 1 Timothy 6.3 If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness. Do you hear it? There is a doctrine that conforms to godliness. That's the doctrine we want to receive from God's word because we need to be made holy. And then there's one final consequence of this false teaching. It's death, I, I call it deathly transmission. The Bible calls it gangrene. Verse 17. Their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now who knows what gangrene is? I was a little unsure. I had a, an idea, but wasn't completely sure. Gangrene is when you have an accident um, or an injury and the blood supply to one of your limbs is cut off. So, of course, there's no blood flowing to a hand or a foot. And so what happens is that that hand or foot starts to die. And it starts to decay. And this gangrene just keeps spreading through that limb. And the only thing you can do when that sets in is to cut it off. That's why in the Civil War there were so many amputations. Because people would be shot in an arm or a leg and gangrene set in and the thing started to spread throughout the body and it's either die or cut the, leg, the limb off. Paul's saying this, this thing that was going on in Ephesus was spreading like a cancer. It was spreading death and decay to the rest of the church and it had to be cut off, it had to be removed for the health of that particular church. You've heard of the saying, one bad apple spoils the whole uh, bucketful, whatever it is, <laughs> barrelful, okay. Um, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Well, false teaching and wrangling about words, if you let that go on, and there's these never-ending disputes and quarrelings about things that are inconsequential, it, it just infects the body. This actually happened to us in a church that we were a part of a long time ago. We had a fellow there that he liked to argue. Have you ever met someone like that? There are certain people that they thrive on arguing. And this fellow just loved it. And so whenever he had a chance, he would argue against what we were teaching. <laughs> and so we, we, we told him, you, you need to be peaceful here, brother. We don't care that you don't agree completely on this issue. But if you start spreading this and haranguing about it and going after it every time we get together, it's just going to be upset and caused dissension amongst the people. So please, live peaceably among us. Well, he wouldn't do it. He refused to do it. It ended up with us having to remove him from the fellowship because he would not cease and desist from this divisive behavior. Here in the church at Ephesus, Paul is calling on Timothy 
this is spreading like gangrene, and Timothy, you have to deal with it. There's some things that you can't just sort of let it go and hope it gets better. (laughs) Some things are so serious that you have to take uh, some serious measures to remove that consequence from a particular church. In fact, we have an example of that in 1 Timothy 1 verse 20. Paul says, Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. So, I'm not exactly sure what he meant by that. To tell you the truth, Paul's delivering people over to Satan. Uh, I think at the very least, it means that this guy was removed from the gracious influences of Christ and his spirit within the local church. He was removed from that church. He somehow delivered over to Satan so that he wouldn't be taught, so that he'd be taught not to blaspheme any longer. Paul took a hard stand. Uh, he did the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when there was sexual immorality going on. He delivered another guy over to Satan so that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So here are the consequences of false teaching, ruin, shame, ungodliness, deathly transmission. Let's look at the cure. What's Timothy supposed to do? Uh, How's he supposed to deal with it? How's he supposed to eliminate it from the church? Well, number one, solemnly charge the church. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God. So he is to address the church there at Ephesus. First of all, he's to remind them. Remind them of what? These things. Well, what things? (laughs) Well, at least what he's just got done telling them in verses 11 to 13 which is that only by enduring to the end will they be saved. He says in verse 11, If we died with Him, we'll live with Him. If we endure, we'll reign with Him. So you need to be willing to die to self, and if necessary, die to this life in order to live with Christ. You need to be willing to endure suffering and hardship in order to reign with Him. So he's encouraging the church to endurance. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God. So you get a real feeling here that this is serious business. You're in the presence of God. They're in the presence of God. God sees. Solemnly charge them. Not to wrangle about words. In other words, get down to business with the church and tell them this can't go on anymore. This has got to stop. We must live in peace. We can't be injecting these false ideas and constantly arguing and disputing over things that don't matter. Be at peace with one another. Solemnly charge them not to do it. So that's the first thing that Timothy is required to do. And so let me solemnly charge you simply because... That's what the Word of God tells us this morning. And not because I I find that there's any problems going on. Because I don't see that happening here at the bridge. Thank God that we're living in peace at this point. We're not having divisions and splits and all this stuff happening. God has given us a real spirit of unity up to this point. I thank God for that. But let's remember this text. That we don't want to let anything like this come into the body. And if it starts, let's nip it in the bud. Let's go to that person that's spreading things that divide and tell them this can't go on. God has called us to live in peace. Now, 
Of course, there are things that we will have to fight for. I need to make that distinction. Jude, verse 3, says, Contend earnestly. The word contend means fight. Fight earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. There are things that we need to fight to the death over, like the deity of Christ, the personal work of God. What is the gospel and how is a person saved? Those are things that we do not budge on, we do not compromise on in the least. But when it comes to inconsequential, fruitless discussions and myths and genealogies and disputes about words, let's put them aside and let's dwell in unity. So, what are some examples of things that we ought not wrangle about? I'll give you some that I came up with. Now, this might not be your list. You might think, boy, this is really important. We ought to be fighting about this. But <laughs> one that I don't think we should fight about is, should we use musical instruments in our services on Sunday? There's a whole church is split off because of that issue. Um, I don't think we should be fighting and bickering over when the rapture is going to happen. Are you pre-trib? Well, I can't fellowship with you. <laughs> Mid-trib? Post-trib? Nope, nope. I don't even think we should be fighting about the millennium whether we're pre-millennial, post-millennial, or amillennial. I bet if we surveyed everybody here, we would have at least two of those positions represented among us. It's never become an issue, and I don't think it ever needs to. We're here about Christ and the gospel, not about some particular theory that we probably never will know for sure until he comes back anyway. Uh, baptism. Do we baptize three times? One, two, three for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or dunk them once? <laughs> you know, there are whole churches that have split over that issue. Um, should we worship on Saturdays or Sundays? Well, I'm not saying that these are unimportant issues. Yeah, there, there is some level of importance to all of the things we're talking about. And I have opinions on all of them. <laughs> but I, Probably you do too. But I don't think we need to fight and continually harangue each other over things like this. Can't we get along, is what he's saying. Can't we get along in the body of Christ? Let's major on the big things. Let's not major on the little tiny things. So, that's how you cure it, Timothy. You solemnly charge them not to wrangle about words. Secondly, you handle God's word accurately. That's how you do it. Not only do you charge them not to wrangle, but you give an example to them of how to deal with God's word so that they don't go astray themselves. He tells us that, we've already read it, verse 15. Be diligent, Timothy, which means make every effort to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So Timothy, accurately handle the Bible. When you teach and when you preach... Be faithful to the text. And this, I want to go off a little ways on this one because I think it is so important. In fact, you all have a little bookmark that was given to you this morning. And you might think this looks a little cutesy, (laughs) this acronym for Bible study, but I'm hoping that by coming up with letters that start with Bible study, it will help you to remember... When you go to the Bible, okay, how can I study the Bible? How can I accurately handle God's Word? The word for accurately handling is the word that means to cut it straight. And it was used of farmers who were cutting a straight furrow, or a carpenter that was cutting a board straight, or a mason that was cutting bricks straight, or a tent maker that was cutting hides straight. The the basic meaning behind it is to deal accurately 
to deal accurately with God's word, with his text. False teachers don't handle the word accurately. Faithful teachers do. And so Timothy needs to set an example to the rest of a faithful, accurate handler of God's word. Now notice a couple of things from verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Two things there. Number one, be diligent. That means this is going to take work. It's going to require effort. If someone stands up to teach God's word, they shouldn't stand up until they have spent time in that word. Until they've prayed over the text. Until they have read it and read it and read it and meditated on it and studied it. They need to be diligent with it. And I want to encourage you, you might not be a teacher, but every single one of us should learn how to study the Bible. And I want to encourage you in some practical things that will help you to study the Bible. So, number one, be diligent. Number two, you're not doing this for the approval of people. I have to constantly remind myself of that. If we start teaching what we teach for the approval of man, forget it. We've lost it right there. If we're, if we're telling people what we're telling them for the sake of numbers, we become an unfaithful steward at that point. And we're going to have to give an account. We won't be presented as a person who, doesn't, who, who will be unashamed on that day. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. We preach and we teach for an audience of one. And folks, when you go to the light rail and you do open air preaching, you're preaching not primarily for the sake of those lost people. God is watching you and he wants to make sure you're faithful to, what you're, to his word when you're proclaiming the gospel. And you're telling them about repentance and faith in Christ who's the Savior and his blood shed for their sin. You want to make sure you don't go off into some weird tangent. But cut it straight. Tell them the truth. So those two ideas come out in verse 15. But what I want to help you with are some practical ways that you can study the Bible. First letter in Bible study is B. Be absorbed in the text. Now, I didn't know if I should go for be absorbed in the text or bury yourself in the text. I liked them both, but I thought bury yourself sounds a little morbid, so I went along with be absorbed. But what that means is that you need to be absorbed in it. You need to read it and reread it and reread it. Get to know that text like your very best friend. Read it until you can't see anything new in it. Be like the little boy who's got that orange and he's sucking the juice out of the orange and he won't quit till every last drop's gone from the orange. Or the little kid with the, the hard candy under his tongue and he just, mm, just enjoys that candy and just makes it last. and he just Be that, like that in the Bible. Where you are, you're looking at it and looking at it and looking at it until, well, I can't see anything more. I've exhausted everything I can see from that text. Number one. I. Identify the central idea. Identify the central idea. So I would encourage you, if you're going to study the Bible, don't try to study three chapters a day. Take a smaller chunk, maybe a paragraph, and work through it paragraph by paragraph. Just like we do here at the bridge. Every Sunday we study the next paragraph. And every week, what I'm trying to do is identify the central idea of that paragraph. Now, who can tell me what the central idea of this paragraph that we've been studying today is? Come on. Okay, accurate teaching? Okay. Anybody else? Okay, yeah. Same point. <laughs> the flip side, yeah. But there you go. So that there we have the central idea. There's false teaching going on, and... So, 
So Timothy needs to address that. So what, what I would encourage all of you to do is when you're studying a text, give it a title. So you've read that paragraph about ten times and you've thought about it a lot. Okay, I believe this is really the main thought, the dominant thought of that text. Give it a title. False teaching or overcoming false teaching, whatever you think that is. B, build an outline. There's probably very few of us that have ever done all this stuff, right? Maybe this is great to you. <laughs> this is what I do every single week. I go through these steps and probably other steps too. But what I want to do is to find the natural divisions of that text. So, if, if you're not sure how to build an outline, just listen to teaching really carefully on Sundays. I've, I'm giving you an outline today. The characteristics of false teaching, the consequences of false teaching, the cure for false teaching. So if, if you listen to that and pick up the idea, you can do it yourself. You want to find the natural divisions that are taking place in that text of Scripture. And all of these subdivisions should relate back to the central idea. See, they should relate back to false teaching. It would be inaccurate for me to say, okay, here are your three points. The characteristics of false teaching, the consequences of false teaching, and the doctrine of election. Where did that come from? It doesn't relate to our central idea, you see? <laughs> okay, L, look for repeated words and phrases. You might think this is not very important. This is really important. And it's a simple thing to do. Just look for things that keep repeating. For example, John 15, 1-7. The words that keep repeating in that text are vine, branches, fruit, and abiding. Put all that together. What's he talking about? He's talking about a, a vine that produces fruit by abiding. Or a branch, I should say. A branch that produces fruit by abiding in the vine. That's the central idea of verses 1 to 7. And you learn all that just by circling all those repeated words and drawing lines between the two. So, read a text, and then either on a journal or in your Bible itself, start circling or drawing lines or arrows or whatever, but notice all the words that keep resurfacing. And then E, examine the context. Someone has once said, a text... Without a context is what? A pretext for error. And what that basically means is if you, if you play Bible roulette and just open your Bible at random and stick your finger, and there's my verse for the day, good luck at finding any truth that way. <laughs> we need to read the Bible from beginning to end. Start a book at chapter 1, verse 1, and read to the very last verse of the book. When you're, when you're re studying, read the material that comes before it, read the material that comes after it, and, and see the flow of thought of the author. What we're looking for is not how does this somehow speak to you and you know grab your emotions in a particular way. That's not it at all. What was the original thought from the original author to the original recipients? What was he trying to communicate to them? And we do that by examining the context. S. See the connecting words. By connecting words, I'm talking about words like because, therefore, for, and, just as, although, nevertheless. Connecting words, because each one of those little words has a meaning. You'd be surprised how easily you can, you can understand a particular text if you just notice those connecting words. Like the word, but, means contrast. Whatever's coming after that word, but, is contrast to what he just said. 
Ephesians 2 verse 4 has a but in it. <laughs> but God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Now the first three verses talk about how horribly desperate we were in our sin, how we were dead in sin. And then he follows that up with a little word that you need to notice, you need to see it, but. And once you see it, okay, I know what's coming. He's changing gears, he's going to give me something different. So just notice those, see them, learn to see those connecting words. T, the five W's, who, what, when, where, and why. And you can throw a how in there too if you want. But <laughs> ask these questions of the text. Who is involved in this text? What is he saying? What, what do I see here? When is it happening? Where is it taking place? Why is this particular material given to us? Just start asking yourself these, these questions. And Okay, so here's study. All you do to change from reading the Bible to studying the Bible is you have a pad of paper next to you and a pen. And you start recording thoughts. You start asking questions of the text and writing down answers. You slow down. I'm going through the book of Proverbs right now. And so what I do is I write out the text of Proverbs. And I'm looking for things. And then on the left side of the journal, I'm writing any, any notes or any insights I'm seeing. So slow down and just start observing what's actually there. So the five W's. You. Utilize study tools. There's a great website called BibleStudyTools.com and it has everything for free that you're going to need to study the Bible. It's got dictionaries and concordances. It's got commentaries. I, I would recommend not using commentaries early in your study process. Use them later because it's going to rob you of the joy of discovering things for yourself if you go too quickly to somebody else. So use them, but use them as a checks and balances by the time you're almost done. Um... But there's all kinds of great tools that, that you can avail yourself of. For instance, if you're not sure what it means in the New American Standard, find another translation and see how they interpret or translate that particular word. So you might look at 12 different versions and just notice how they vary on particular words. And that will help you to see the range of meaning for this English word. So use study tools. D, determine the plain meaning of the text. We can get way off track when we start looking for these hidden, mystical, allegorical interpretations of Scripture. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that there are three levels of, of um, how you're supposed to interpret a text. And the greatest and most important meaning is the hidden one underneath the surface that is allegorical. The problem with that is it's like a wax nose. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say if you look hard enough and work hard enough with allegories and mystical interpretations. I would encourage you just to look for the plain meaning. Just pick it up off the ground. There it is. What's the natural meaning of that text? Now, there are some texts where you're going to see more than one thing. So we saw that when we went back to Genesis, didn't we? We saw Christ in types, in shadows, and you'll see Christ everywhere through the Old Testament. That's valid. Jesus himself taught us that he was the subject of the whole Bible. But I would encourage you, begin with, just look for the plain meaning. Start there. And if you start to see something else, ask another seasoned brother in the Lord, do you think this is right? This is what I'm starting to see here. And be humble enough to let... You know, if he says, I, I really think you're getting off on that one, to, okay, well, let me look, let me look at that again. <laughs> Maybe I got it wrong. 
And then why? Your life. That simply means Bible study is never complete until we apply it to our lives. Uh, I, I saw on the internet the other day the spec method for application. And I thought, this is, I can remember the word spec. And so if you're wondering, how do I apply this text to my life? Use the spec method. S, are there sins to avoid? P, are there promises to claim? E, are there examples to follow? C, is there, are there commands to obey? And K, is there knowledge for me to glean? Sin, promise, example, command, knowledge. Just start asking yourself, how might I apply the truth that I'm seeing here to my own personal life? And make a commitment then to apply it. It might sound like a lot. And it is. It is. But I want to encourage you to begin to develop study skills so that you're not dependent upon me or anybody else that you learn how to grow up and and not have your mommy have to jam the spoon in your mouth. You can pick up the spoon and you can start eating for yourself. You can feed yourself as a student of God's Word. Beware of novel interpretations. Beware of that. Be honest with the text. Let the text determine to you what it means. You don't tell it what it means. Okay? We are underneath the authority of that text. It, it determines truth. We must obey it. We don't... Sometimes, just to tell you honestly and plainly, sometimes there is a temptation for a teacher to want to make the Bible say something that really doesn't because it, you have this great sermon that <laughs> surfaces. Never give in to that temptation to... To say the Bible says something it doesn't say just for the sake of some great sermon that it's going to give you. Let the Bible be the authority in all things. So here we're looking for the cure. Let me just remind you where we're going. The cure for false teaching is to solemnly charge the congregation. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Another one here is to avoid false teaching. We find that from verse 16. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Paul charges Timothy, avoid it. It's not enough that you teach teach correct doctrine, but you need to avoid yourself false teaching. In fact, in verse 23, he says, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Have nothing to do with them. Just don't get involved. If someone wants to go on and on and on about something inconsequential and they want to argue to the death about it, just say, well, I I know this is really important to you, but I just don't think it's worth us fighting about. Let's, Let's be at peace, brother. You know, pursue peace with that individual. So avoid it. Um, Proverbs 26 verse 20 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. So, throw the log out the window. You have no more fire. It's going to go out. And then finally, a final cure is to rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in God's sovereignty. Look at verse 19. He's just said in verse 18, These people upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, now there's a connecting word. Remember I just talked to you about see the connecting words? This is an important connecting word. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. And there's two seals here. It's like two sides of a coin. The first seal, 
The Lord knows those who are His. Second seal, everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, Hymenaeus and Alexander in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy were blaspheming. Paul delivered them over to Satan. He excommunicated them, evidently. But somehow, well, Alexander's gone from the scene, but Philetus has taken his place, and these guys are still influencing the church from the outside, it appears. They said that the resurrection has already taken place. A damnable doctrine. Evidently, they were saying something like, uh, there is no future resurrection for believers. You've experienced a spiritual resurrection of your soul when you were born again. And that's all there is. There is no future bodily resurrection for the Christian. Well, Paul says, if there's no resurrection of Christ, then your faith is vain. Christ rose bodily, and there is a future bodily resurrection for those who are in Christ. So, this is one of the errors that they were propagating. Uh, Hymenaeus. It's got to be the same guy. I mean, how many Hymenaeuses could there possibly be back then? (laughs) And Philetus upsetting the faith of some. But Paul says, nevertheless, God's firm foundation stands. What does he mean? He means these guys are teaching false doctrine, but God's foundation stands. The Lord knows those who are His. In other words, those who are His will not be deceived in the end, in spite of the false teaching that's going on. You've got these guys telling you that the resurrection has already taken place, Don't worry, because God is sovereign. God's sovereign purposes will be accomplished. Remember, Jesus said that if it were possible in the last days, even the elect would be deceived. Why did he say, if possible? Because it's not possible for the elect to be finally and fatally deceived. So here we've got two seals. It's sort of like, have you seen driveways where someone wrote their name when the cement was wet, and then they put the date? It's kind of like what we have here, the seal that was imprinted on the foundation of the church. You've got two seals. There is a hidden seal and a visible seal. The hidden seal is, the Lord knows those who are His. The visible seal is this, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Now I made a little chart. I think we've got it here. I want to just show you this. The Lord knows those who are His. This is the doctrine of election. God has chosen from all eternity those that He planned to save. Let everyone abstain from wickedness. This is the doctrine of sanctification. Two different doctrines. Both are seals imprinted on the foundation of the church. The Lord knows those who are His. This is the decree of God. The other seal, that's the duty of man. The decree of God, the duty of man. The first seal results in our comfort. God knows those who are His, and none of them can be lost. The second seal results in our diligence, that we must actively abstain from wickedness. The first seal is the divine side. The second seal is the human side. The first seal is dated in eternity past. The second seal is dated in time, right now. Now we must abstain from wickedness. The first seal is a declaration we must believe. The second seal is an exhortation we must obey. The first seal relates to the security of the church. The second to the purity of the church. Do you see the difference? 
The first seal means that God is completely in charge, that his purposes cannot be thwarted, that all that he has chosen from eternity past will be saved, and they cannot be ultimately deceived by these false teachers. God will make sure of that. Spurgeon once, in quoting or commenting on this text, said this, The first seal marked it for the Lord. The second secured its removal from the common stones around it. First comes election, and sanctification follows. I want every professing Christian to have that double mark, and so to be Christ's man, known of all to be such by coming out from the unclean and being separated unto the Lord. And these two seals always go together. Everyone God knows is His will abstain from wickedness. That's one of the ways we figure out who is really the Lord's and who isn't. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 7.23, Depart from me, all you who practice lawlessness. I knew you once, but then I forgot about you. (laughs) He says, I never knew you. I never had a saving relationship with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So one of the ways this would apply to you is we should ask ourselves, am I departing from lawlessness? Am I abstaining from wickedness? Or am I running headlong into it? Those who are the Lord's will abstain from wickedness and prove our election. Those who run into wickedness are simply proving that they're not elect. Paul says in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So the Christian has died to sin. He's not one who lives and finds his his element in sin. That's the foreign element now that he's been born again. So let me just leave you with a couple of thoughts as we boil this text down. Two thoughts. Handle God's word accurately and pursue holiness. If you take away those two thoughts and apply those two thoughts to your life, you'll do well. Be a student of God's word. God's Word. Be diligent with it. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Make it the joy of your life. Bury yourself in it. Be absorbed in it. Lie down and soak in it. Okay? That's what I mean. Lie down and soak in it. Be diligent with the Word and then pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to to obey your word found in this text, whether we're a teacher or not. I pray for your congregation here today, Lord, that you'd help each person to become a better student of Scripture. And perhaps some have never studied the Bible. Lord, would you help them to dig in this week and to use these tools that we've talked about and to learn what your word means and how to apply it, how to become a godly man or woman. And Lord, help each one of us to abstain from wickedness to depart and to be clean vessels unto you and we ask this in Jesus name amen